the spirit dies without the symbol and we begin to uh, chip away at the symbols of our cultural symbols we we have given up dharma for secularism we have given up gurukulam patshala for convent education we have given up diwali for halloween we don't celebrate diwali as americans in the us indians may celebrate it i don't see white people and black people celebrating diwali over here why should indian people in mumbai and delhi have halloween parties why should we have christmas parties why should you know i have many hindu friends who go to the church to do a christmas mass i don't see christians going to the mandir during navratri we have been traumatized as a nation of uh, hindus into thinking that we are an inferior species and uh, just as a person who is traumatized in life is not able to get through it without any external help we have begun to seek validation externally in order to pull us out of this mess whereas we should start uh, looking more inwards and finding out uh, more about our own journey and passing it on to our children it is a pleasure to connect with all of you and also our audience who have joined us today um we are trying to break new ground in terms of bringing together different thematic elements from disparate subject matters so often times we come across people who say okay the vedas are scientific and some people say it is not scientific and so on and so forth and these almost irrelevant back and forth debates which don't come to any solid conclusion and so what we are actually trying to do is plumb the depths of what the shastras speak about as well as understand more about the world through um, you know different uh, forms of literature scientific literature so on and so forth and try to find parallels in these systems and uh, in the process we are also debunking many myths that are uh, um, associated with some of these uh, uh, presumptions and uh, so this is one of the attempts of our podcasting channel and uh, also the goal of the podcast eventually is to take each individual subject matter um bounce it back and forth with an interlocutor so i'm having a conversation with a, a, a friend of mine with lekha who's also interested into the in in, in the same uh, area and uh, through our conversations we are trying to arrive and break new grounds in terms of the discussions uh, and and the things that can be arrived through it so uh, eventually each episode would end up being a chapter in a given book and so the the topic today that we are going to be discussing which is dharma uh, the vedic vision of reality is also going to be one such uh, subject matter uh, that that would feature in the book eventually and uh, i'm very excited to discuss this with you so the topic today uh, is uh, dharma the vedic vision of reality um and i'll just begin with the mangala charan ratnakaravdevtapadam himalaya kiritinim brahmarajashi ratnadyam vande bharatamataram Om. so we begin with uh, the simple question what exactly is dharma and we find that uh, generally speaking uh, people have imputed many different um, meanings behind this word dharma some people say it means religion others call it duty and then if you look at it scripturally speaking uh, it's also referred to as the inherent property of uh, the padarthas of uh, the different substances that 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 we find in the world and then sometimes it is also referred to as the ethical principles and so through this talk we are going to be exploring each one of these in uh, great detail and uh, trying to really arrive at a fuller picture of dharma so the way i really see it is that uh, let's say we have an image which is comprised of multiple pixels and the more pixels you have the clearer the resolution and it it stands out to you as a very stark uh, you know beautiful fully fledged image which is which is what we are trying to arrive at through our explanation and understanding of dharma so uh just to understand a little bit of etymology 
Dharma comes from the Sanskrit dhatu dr, which means to hold or sustain or to keep in place, and so it gives you the sense of something being grounded. And here, the grounding isn't just being grounded in terms of oneself as a person, but it speaks of the grounding of the fabric of reality itself. And we will be exploring and touching upon this theme in much greater detail uh, throughout this talk. Now, dharma is not confined to any one aspect of life, but it pervades all of them. And uh, another word that can be used uh, interchangeably, but not quite, but in some sense, is the word rhythm. Rhythm. So uh, you know, there's a Shanti mantra called Rhythm Vadishami, Satyam Vadishami, Tanmamut, Tadvikarmut. So all of these uh, words indicate that there is an order which was pervading this cosmos. There is an order which is holding all of uh, the things in its place, and this is what we refer to when we uh, uh, say the word Dharma. And uh, of course, uh, when we speak about our tradition that we follow, that we adhere to, Sanatana Dharma. the prefix sanatana is actually referring to something being unborn uncreated beginningless and so uh, when we speak about the word dharma sanatana is almost redundant but the reason we use it use it is more of a dequalifier than a qualifier so one may think that okay did dharma begin at some point in time for example if you think about uh, the prophetic religions the abrahamic religions all of them have a founding uh, um, father or they have some point in time in which they came about so uh, one may also wonder that okay what about uh, the dharma that we follow did it come about at some time was it the creation of a singular person and the word sanatana uh, is a dequalifier because it takes away that presumption that dharma came about in time because dharma is something that is beginningless and the reason why it is beginningless is also something that we will see as we as we go through so uh, the first uh, um, understanding of dharma we refer to as the rhythm is uh, something that we'll be touching upon now if you look at the world around you uh, probably in front of you you're viewing this on a laptop or on a cell phone and so things are held in its place um your you know table will remain where it is your monitor will continue to function the way it is uh, more or less and uh, you know when you wake up the next day the sun is still going to rise on the east so whatever that we perceive around us in the world is immutably held in its place and there is a certain order that that uh, weaves through the fabric of reality so that there is one thing to keep in mind and uh, the things around us also possess immutable properties so let's say we think about a proton which exerts a certain positive charge and electron may exert a negative charge all of these charges are well defined they are well understood they can be quantified you can uh, put them as part of an equation and solve problems you can uh, create technology out of this understanding and it is only because these properties are immutable which is why we can actually do things with them even the use of our technology uh, the computer for instance relies upon our understanding of the physical world and so that is uh, also dharma because uh, that which holds things in its place that we spoke about the dhatu dhar and also something having immutable properties the property of a substance is also dharma now the world around us uh, follows certain laws uh, whenever we write an equation whether it's a mathematical equation a scientific equation any form of a construct that we come about uh depends upon the laws being followed through time so let's say we take the simple example of e equals mc square that there is a correlation between energy and mass is not something that is going to change it's going to be invariable and that is the only reason an equation works an equation cannot work until and unless uh, there is some uh fixed standard uh, and a structure that is inherent to the world and the properties that are inherent to the world 
and so this is also what we refer to as part of the order and uh, uh, there is a new subject matter that has come about in the last 50 or so years which is called the chaos theory and so uh, we've all heard about chaotic systems uh, we've heard of system dynamics we've heard of uh, complexity uh, randomness entropy all of these words which talk about how certain things are indeterministic but even the things which are seemingly indeterministic are following a certain order and therefore even the whole concept of chaos is embedded within the broader and larger framework of something that is the order uh, lastly we speak about uh, nature and uh, the categories that uh, that that define it and so whenever we study a subject matter uh, we assign it a certain name right so for example uh, if we are studying the physical cosmos uh, we refer to it as physics if we are looking at the interaction of different elements and how they form compounds then uh, we enter the realm of chemistry when these chemical um, um substances uh, you know form uh, biological beings and we speak about organisms then we've entered the realm of biology but in truth any subject that it is that we are studying all we are truly delving into is uh, nature and uh, it is this nature uh, nature derives its properties again through the principles of dharma so everything in nature is determined by a certain uh, dharmic framework in the study of dharma is something that we assign labels to and we refer to it as separate subjects based on the specializations that we are trying to um uh, form so uh, the next thing i'd i'd like to discuss is the idea of ishwara and so when we speak about the world uh, you know there is there is this uh, question how did the world come about and shastra refers to ishwara as a jagat karana so the word karana refers to the cause and uh, ishwara is uh, supposed uh, to be both the nimitta karana and the upadana karana so when we look at the nimitta karana uh, the nimitta karana is uh, the efficient cause but uh, we want to make the clear distinction that this is not the abrahamic notion of intelligent design because uh, that is of course a, a concept that is um, appropriately looked down upon and it refers to some deity some entity that is sitting outside the universe pulling the strings and uh, just uh, making things happen without um, any rational explanation whereas when we speak about the nimitta karana uh, ishwara is meant to be understood both in the context of the nimitta and the upadana karana because ishwara is not only the efficient cause the one who brings about the the cosmos through the intelligence and the laws that are inherent to the cosmos but is also the very product of the cosmos and so we will uh, look into that a little bit more um so when we speak about the upadana karana so let's say uh, we ha- we are trying to build a pot plot uh, the, the pot would require material in the form of clay now the universe is obviously made of stuff there's matter energy which is pervading the the cosmos and so where does this stuff come from uh, is it something that ishwara created is it something that ishwara molded and then uh, just you know sent out to the physical world to do its thing and uh, the answer to that is no uh, ishwara itself is the upadana karana the very content of the jagat that we refer to that we look around uh, that we interact with that we that we uh, perceive all of it is nothing but ishwara and therefore ishwara is both the efficient cause and the upadana karana now uh, whenever we think about the world and we speak about different categories they are very malleable categories for example uh, let's say we we draw a distinction between um, uh, sajatiya uh, sorry vijatiya sajatiya and swagata bhed so there are three distinctions that that are there in this world uh, let's say we talk about the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom so you have you have an object called a tree 
and then you may have an object or 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 a thing like a deer so obviously these belong to different categories but even so this is what you will call vijati abed because they belong to different species so the jati here refers to the species but even within let's say the plant kingdom you could have many different types of plants you could have uh, you know you know you could have an apple tree you could have a cherry tree you could have all sorts of distinctions even within that and so within a certain uh, jati you will have distinctions between members of that jati and that is what you refer to as a sajati abed now let's say uh, we are looking at uh, just one member of of the jati we can we can call it a coconut tree so now the coconut tree itself will again be subject to the three divisions all over again because a coconut tree will have the coconut uh, uh, fruit and then you will have the the fronds and you will have the bark and you will have the roots and so then those are the vijati abed of a single um entity a single member within the same uh, species and then again within let's say within the the leaf you'll have distinctions there because one leaf may be of a different length than the other and so on and so forth now even when you come to the molecular level uh, you know you 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 have distinctions between uh, different compounds you have even within the same type of compound let's say you have a hydrogen atom you have one atom which is uh, located in a certain place and time and then you have a different atom somewhere else and so these bhedas continue on and forth and uh, there is no end to it so as long as we speak about the physical world and as long as we perceive the world around us there will always be further 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 distinctions and there is no end to this um now whenever we speak of an object we are never speaking about the thing itself we are always speaking about a conglomerate so let's say uh, you know we we uh, talk about the the fastest pitched baseball throw or uh, the speed of a tennis ball when roger federer hit, uh, hits a serve we are speaking about the ball as a conglomerate but there's no such thing as a ball in itself because it's comprised of again individual atoms and the atoms themselves are comprised of something else and so any category that we speak about is always a conglomerate and there is no essential substance that you can finally arrive down to it's always going to be an ad- admixture uh and this is what we actually refer to as mithya so let's say uh, you know my uh, guru uh, pujya sami dayananda saraswati ji used to give this a uh, perfect example he said that uh, uh, you know you take a shirt from the standpoint of the person wearing a shirt this thing is obviously a red polo but then from the standpoint of somebody who's weaving it uh, you know all he or she sees is yarn and then from the standpoint of the person who's actually picking the cotton it is uh, it is a certain fabric and uh, you know it, it may even have a botanical classification for that plant and so uh, if you even divide that further from the standpoint of the 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 constituents of the cotton fiber you have uh, you know carbon uh, molecules and and this can go on endlessly there's no end to it and so whenever we speak about a single object we have to keep in mind that we are not speaking about a single substance we are always speaking about it in combination with other things so this is this is the nature of mithya that you can never arrive to the thing to the vastu and this vastu is what uh, our shastra is really concerned about and um, so that is something we look into further so what is something then we already discussed that there is no such thing that uh, you can arrive at through um, a, a deeper funnel view because it will always be replaced by something else and so uh, if we look at our journey through science we've always considered that uh, we've reached the essential substance we've reached the final frontier of the the very fundamental matter and uh, if we go back a few hundred years uh, when the microscopes became relatively complex in nature they could actually see individual cells in plants and animals 
And so they figure that this is the base substance. Even prior to that, if you look at uh, what the Greeks spoke about and what our, uh, you know, our um, uh, traditionalists spoke about, they, we had our own theory of the atom. And the word atom actually refers to indivisible. But in some sense, it is a very conceited term because we know today that whatever their notion of the atom was, it is still further divisible into its own subcomponents. And so, okay, you know, let's go back a few few hundred years. So they thought that, okay, this, the cell is the basic foundational structure of a living being. And everything that, that walks, talks, moves is comprised of these indivisible cells. And then, you know, we, we went a little bit further in time and then we figured out, okay, maybe it's not cells. Maybe there are uh, subcomponents of the cells because you have organelles, you have DNA, you have chromosomes, you have all of these fancy things that uh, mechanisms that operate within the human cell or the plant cell. And so they figured, okay, maybe there's something to that as well. And then they came across this whole idea of molecules. And then uh, we know that Einstein in his 1905 paper uh, on Brownian motion arrived at uh, something called the Browning effect, which uh, established that there is actually um, something called an atom, which was in debate. So about 150 years back, there was actually a debate whether atoms exist or not. And <laughs> so, you know, things get really gnarly when we think about it, because throughout history, our definition of what something is and what is the foundational structure of reality has continued to uh, undergo certain transformations. And uh, it is almost a scientific conceit to think that we've reached at the edge of, of uh, reality and we've uncovered the, the nature of what there is to discover. So everything is ultimately Nam Rupa. And that is what our Shastra says, that everything is a given name and form. There is nothing more to a substance than a name and form. Because the substantive, the very substance that is behind the object does not belong to that object. It is only a name and form that's superimposed upon it. Just coming back to the example of a shirt, this is only a name and form. There is no such thing called a shirt. Because a shirt itself is again made of yarn and yarn is made of fiber and so on and so forth. So depending on my vantage point, I can always replace the thing with something else. And if something can be replaced by something else, it makes us question the very nature and reality of the thing existing in the first place. So this is what we mean by Mithya and everything that is Mithya is comprised of only Nam and Rupas. So now it's a very interesting phenomena that ultimately, where does what is the sub substance of this uh, physical world that, that we live in, that we interact with, that we perceive? And it is a manifestation of Ishwara's knowledge. And so the way to think about it is that, uh, let's say whenever you have some form of a creation, um, you're writing a computer code, for instance, there requires to be a programmer. Now, the place where this example falls apart is because when we think about a programmer, you think of a program that is independent of the programmer that's going to be running and doing its thing and spitting out an output. Whereas what we are actually positing in the Shastra is that both quote unquote, the program and the programmer are one and the same. There is no um, fundamental difference between the two. And uh, it is this order, this law that pervades everything that allows us to calculate and to form equations and to create correlations and to wield technology to our advantage through our understanding of science and nature implies that there is some intelligence that is embedded within the cosmos itself. It is not a cosmos that is a, a random chance event. In fact, uh, you know, there's this whole atheistic uh, notion about uh, Occam's razor. So it is very applicable even for us because it's a, it's a great uh, logical tool to dismiss the, the, the nonsense from the sense. But uh, what they imply is that, okay, this universe just came about through, um, let's say, a random quantum fluctuation. But then that begs the question that, okay, where did the fluctuation come from? 
then there are some people who posit that okay maybe there is something called a multiverse and within this whole um you know uh, framework of multiverses there are individual universes most of which are not suited to support life but ours just happen to be the one which is suited to support life but then that begs the question where did those multiverses come from all of these others and uh, what was the causative uh, factor that that spawned this whole uh, uh, plethora of different universes and so that way you know many of these uh, atheistic uh, especially especially uh, in the west people have tried to come up with different models to explain how things exist and how they have come about and uh, why things are the way they are and why certain properties are inherent to matter and reality and uh, they have only replaced the whole notion of ishvara with some other inexplicable concept and uh, it requires as much if not even more shraddha uh, to accept those concepts than it does to accept ishvara because uh, there's again occam's razor which is functioning over here which which is to say that if you have countless universes out of which one universe is capable of supporting life it seems a little wasteful it's a waste of real estate it's a waste of space it's a it's a barrage on one's own intelligence because that doesn't seem to make as much sense as understanding that there is intelligence embedded within the cosmos and this universe is a manifestation of that very intelligence now um the reason we say knowledge is inseparable from the substance is uh, because uh there there has been a theory posited by a certain uh, john wheeler who was a celebrated scientist uh, i i believe he also won the nobel prize if i'm not mistaken and he was also the the guide and mentor of richard feynman who certainly was one of the greatest physicists who ever lived and uh, he came up with this uh, nice catchy phrase called from uh, no it from bit so uh th- there's a whole branch of science that opened up in the last few decades um in the latter half of the last century in fact Uh, which is called information theory and so usually one branch of science uh, speaks about how matter is the foundational construct of reality whereas this new theory which is uh, gaining a lot of traction and it seems to explain many problems which were hitherto uh, inexplicable suggests that it is information that is at the base of all matter and not the other way around and so this is uh, very well uh, it, it's it's coherent even with what our shastras speak about and uh, let's let's take one example of it when we go to sleep at night and we have a dream it is our memories that form the building blocks of the dream world in in its essence the dream world is indistinguishable from the real world except for the fact that you wake up and then you can dismiss the dream as a dream but while you're dreaming the events of the dream are very much real they are experienced to you you experience love and fear and joy and hunger insecurities jealousies all sorts of things that we experience in a waking state uh, we are also subject to those vagaries uh, during our dream state which is called the swapna avastha but then it begs the question where does the dream world arise from uh, obviously there is a certain ground that you walk on and there's a sky that uh, that surrounds you and there's air that you breathe and there are people that you speak to and they all seem distinct from you and yet it is our own memories that serve as the building blocks of the dream world in other words it is a knowledge content of the individual which is manifesting in the form of the dream and then we enter the dream and it appears as though the dream is external to us and that's mind boggling but also very beautiful because if you take the same analogy and you extrapolate it to the physical cosmos i won't exactly call it ishwara's dream because that gets a little um um hard to justify 
but you can see that it is a knowledge content of this universal uh, jnana what you call what we call ishvara sarvagnya as sarvavid because the entire knowledge content is embedded within the framework of what we refer to as maya and ishvara is able to wield this maya shakti it is this maya shakti which is appearing as the cosmos just as the memories of the individual appears as the dream and when you dream of a building you don't have blocks stored in your brain you don't have cement blocks and you don't have mortar and all of these things you simply have your memories which are re- rearranging and organizing themselves in a certain fashion so we are both the nimitta karana and the upadana karana of our dreams we are the nimitta karana because what we perceive in the dream is a function of the memories that we have stored we've all had this experience that sometimes if you undergo a certain traumatic event if there's a death if there is uh, some sort of separation some tragedy uh, you know maybe a breakup whatever it may be you may start experiencing some of those things in your dreams for at least the next couple of days right and uh, the reason for this is again that there is a nimitta there is a causality between our memories and the the dream structure the dream world and likewise for the whole jagat and so we will look into this a little bit further as well so the next point i wanted to discuss is what is life usually when we speak about uh, life from the abrahamic sense uh, life seems to be defined as a binary that okay there is something called living there is something called un- uh, non living and the living things have a soul and the non living things don't in fact uh, it gets even uh, a bit crazier in the abrahamic sense because many believe that only humans have souls and not plants and animals but okay let's put that distinction aside the point is that uh, in the western theologies and the western philosophies life has always been treated as a binary system whereas this is not the case in shastra now the reason the distinction between inert and sentient is a moot case is because consciousness pervades everything so when we refer to uh, ishvara and when we refer to brahman as the very uh, uh, foundation of reality uh, there is a certain uh, expression we use called satchitananda so the chit refers to consciousness and uh, when we speak of consciousness that is what uh, lends sentiency to all beings so this uh, inert versus sentient uh, gray is actually a gradient it is not a binary divide there's no point at which something comes quote unquote alive and there's no point at which something is inert it's a gradient and uh, the reason we say that is because uh, we we have certain reflecting medium so let, let's take an example let's say we have light that is filling a room and within that room you have different objects now the same light is going to shine uh, on a lot of these objects but some objects are much darker than the others and some objects are brighter and some objects are like reflecting mirrors which completely show you the light the way it's supposed to be and so one cannot say that there is a point at which the light is reflected versus a point at which the light is not reflected the light is reflected across all of the objects but some reflected more than the others so same way when we speak about the idea of sentiency about life about living uh it is a degree of sentiency that is displayed in a given substance or in a given organism or in a uh, given uh, life form and uh, that is a very important distinction to draw so yes just as we discussed like some mediums are better reflections of this pervasive consciousness and the reason we seem to be displaying a uh, sentiency compared to say a rock or a pebble or a stone is because we possess uh, something called a sukshma sharira which is uh, the subtle body and that is what uh, you know comprises of the mind let's let's put it that way 
and usually uh, there's a misconception that people say that when someone dies or someone is born it is the atma that is transmigrating it's not the atma it is actually this sukshma sharira this uh, subtle body and the subtle body is a quote unquote again a good reflecting medium to um, manifest consciousness and that is what lends us sentience so this whole uh, debate about whether something is living or not living is a moot debate it's a useless debate because that is not the way we look at the world at all everything is degrees of sentience in, in degrees of sentience now uh, l- let's see how this can create problems especially in the western dialectical systems so um, obviously everybody by now is aware of the covid virus and it is a virus and uh, there is still a debate about whether a virus is a living being or a non living being this is a very heated scientific debate because people have agreed that okay there is something called a stone that's non living sure there's human beings there's bacteria there's plants animals all these things are living beings sure what about a virus and so till date the west has not been able to effectively define what it means to be living so you know one definition somebody tried to pull is okay living is something that reproduces but uh, you if you have certain uh, abnormalities and deformities in crystals those crystal deformities start spreading to other crystals as well and vice versa uh, same way if you have fire you can even refer to fire as a living being uh, from the western perspective of it uh, reproducing because just as a living creature we feed ourselves we take in inputs from the world and then we grow uh, we grow larger sometimes we grow smaller as we age but all of these things happen same way when you feed fuel into the fire the fire grows and the fire is able to reproduce you could you, you know you can have a spark that gets sent off somewhere else and there's a smaller fire over there and so this definition of living versus non living uh, by the standard of uh, reproduction doesn't apply very well and so uh, every single notion that the west has tried to put about uh, in terms of what is living versus non living has led to a failure of understanding whereas we say that there is no such binary there is only a gradient and so that is the dharmic understanding of what life is now the reason i spoke about this so far and the uh, this whole distinction between quote unquote inert and sentient is because every inert object that we perceive follows dharma by default uh, and this may not be very well understood at, at the very first glance because what does it mean to say that an inert object follows dharma uh, what about an atom does an atom follow dharma and the answer to that is yes because there is a certain if if we go back to our uh, original statement the laws are also dharma the fact that there is an electron which constantly you know orbits well not really an orbit but uh, let's say it's it's uh, there's a dis- probability distribution of an electron cloud which goes around uh, the nucleus that's not going to change things are going to be the way they are it's because they are following their own dharma now they are not following it because there is a choice involved by default there is dharma involved over there so same way if you think about uh, sentient creatures also even within sentient creatures such as ourselves or plants or animals there is also a gradient of free will versus impulse so i want to take two steps back again to connect it to this statement first we spoke about the gradient between inert and sentient and now within sentient creatures itself there is a gradient between creatures who display free will versus those which are impulsive so uh, let's take an example right um we are obviously free willed creatures which we will get to in the next slide but let's take it as a fact for now that we exert and display free will because we have choice and we have volition we have uh, we can decide things whether they are right or wrong whether they are good or bad whether they are dharmic or adharmic 
take you know there's this whole discussion about should beef be banned in india right and so we can take a stand on that and yeah it probably should because for so and so reasons now if you ask a tiger first of all you can't ask a tiger because you can't communicate with one but let's say a tiger is not going to have the moral dilemma of whether it should eat a cow or a buffalo or whatever it's just going to follow its own dharma because it has no volition over its diet it's not going to suddenly eat a cow and start feeling guilty that you know what i think i contributed to global warming it's not going to have the dilemma like us and so therefore uh, most creatures which don't display free will are following dharma by default because it is their prabhuti and they don't have too much influence or too much uh, volition over any of that whereas we do and so that brings us actually to the next topic that uh, what what is karma so so far we looked at dharma as the overarching order and from the standpoint of uh, karma the dharmic actions so so dharma is also the order but there are also certain actions which are dharmic and those actions which are in keeping with upholding this universal order is what you refer to as dharma also and those uh, are, are actions are subject to the laws of karma so again to reiterate the original statement you have something called dharma which are the inherent laws and karma is an aspect of dharma which come under the purview of the karmic laws so sentient beings also fall more dharma by default except in creatures of uh, except with creatures of free will such as us so which is something we spoke about and uh, the free willed creatures such as ourselves who are capable of exercising choice it is we who are subject to the laws of karma so the tiger is not going to draw any negative positive punya pap all of this based on its diet nor is the cow going to earn punya because it is purely vegetarian okay that is its default mode there's no dharma involved over there it is doing dharma by default whereas for us every choice we make whether we are uh, you know making a choice to vote in a certain fashion vote for a certain leader eat a certain food uh, um, say a certain thing to a certain somebody all of these things come under the laws of karma because we have a choice over it and uh, not only do we have a choice but we also have an understanding of the consequences of our actions and then even within free willed creatures who have a choice i didn't mention this in the slide but even there there is an age factor so you know a 2 year old uh, who uh, accidentally shoots someone with an air gun is not going to earn any pap karma because it has no idea what it's doing but uh, a 20 year old yeah probably and so there's an age gradient involved here as well where uh, our actions will earn a certain karma and all of these come under the laws of karma which itself is embedded within the larger framework of dharma now karma is of three types you have agami karma prarabdha karma and sanchita karma so here's how i give the example let's say sanchita karma is the entire collection of all the karmas that have ever been performed by an individual through countless lifetimes we take this as an assumption because this is what shastra says that uh, there's been anadi kal pravruti which means that we have never not had a birth we've always had a birth the gita mentions this upanishads speak about it it's it's all over the place so we take it now the prarabdha karma is the karma that we walk into this janma with and the agami karma are the new karmas we generate within this birth so the way we can analogize this is let's say you have a bank now the sum total of your bank balance is everything that you ever earned that is your sanchita karma the prarabdha is like the wallet or the purse that you carry to go out shopping one day and the agami is the stuff that you transact with so uh, our sanchita karma is the bag full of countless karmic uh, pap karma punya karma storage house 
the prarabdha karma is that stuff that you come into this one single life with and that prarabdha will determine many things um in a big way and some things in a small way for example the person that you will get married to your gender your well gender is uh, there's this whole debate but i'm not even going to go there i i i don't think everything is a social category there are certain biological parameters that define gender as well and <laughs> sex and gender but you know your sex is determined by your prarabdha karma your your uh, body type whether you you're going to be genetically disposed to certain diseases whether you'll be born to certain parents whether you'll be born in a certain place whether you'll undergo certain um pleasurable and displeasurable experiences in life uh, the, the 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 person you'll marry to whether you'll have an inclination towards moksha whether you'll be born in a certain family versus another all of these things are determined by the prarabdha karma now prarabdha karma are also of two types i haven't quite mentioned it here but it might be worth thinking about one is called prabala prarabdha and the other is called durbala prarabdha so the durbala prarabdha is the weak prarabdha that can be overcome through our free will actions and the prabala prarabdha are those very very strong prarabdhas which have such strong impressions that you cannot really overcome it so for example you know let's say um, there's there's a there's there's a person who's 5 foot 5 that's prabala prarabdha that is going to determine that you never going to be a good basketball player right at the major league at the national uh, level because you know people there are like 6 foot 7 uh, 7 feet uh, tall and so there are certain uh, you know biological parameters that you can't overcome no matter what you try you never going to beat usain bolt in a 100 meter sprint if you are say not usain bolt right because he has certain parameters that determine his success in life and so the prabala prarabdha and durbala prarabdha are like two things that uh, determine whether we'll be able to overcome it or not okay and the reason we bring this about is the fruits of karma are handled by the cosmic laws so when i perform an action the action and the result is only separated by this notion of time that's really it i i do something that is called a karma i receive a result that's called a karma phala and what separates the karma from the karma phala is samay time or kal and this time factor sometimes can be delayed it can be after a few years it could be in the next janma it could be after five janmas or it could be immediate so let's say if i throw a ball up in the air and i catch it again that's an immediate result i don't have to wait for it but let's say you you know you go out on the street uh, you're driving on a motorcycle you slap somebody on the road and you continue on you may not get an immediate result but there is going to be a time factor delay over there and how it's going to come when it's going to come through whom it's going to come in what form it's going to come all of these things are intertwined and uh, this is what you call the collective prarabdha of all creatures and that is handled by the cosmic laws so the laws of karma are so difficult to understand and i don't mean just these concepts but to understand how a certain result comes from a certain action that uh, even in the gita krishna bhagwan says that you don't worry about that you leave that calculation part to me <laughs> you just understand that these are what the laws and uh, there are certain results associated with your actions the way the karmic laws are handled is also dharma and uh, here's a very important thing so often times when we uh, speak about uh, dharma or or uh, karma and karma phala one may wonder that okay is this kind of like the commandments in christianity or islam or wherever where you do this so you will get that if you do that you will get that and so on and so forth and the answer to that is no because dharma depends on many things there's something called desh kal vastu paristhiti so it looks at the place it looks at the time it looks at the situation and based on that it determines what your action should be but then what determines 
uh, whether something is going to earn punya or something is going to earn pap um this is a very beautiful a unique and uh, you know it it gives goosebumps when you think about it but that which preserves the cosmic order is what is going to earn punya and that which disrupts the cosmic order is going to bring you pap so let us uh, take a few moments to reflect on what i mean by this order or not what i mean but what shastra means by this order when you think about the world around you again like when you study the physical world there's physics involved when you study the chemical world there's chemistry involved there's an order over there you can't really disturb too much of that because we don't have so much control over like disrupting galaxies and so on and so forth but now there's an order involved even in the world that we inhabit there's a psychological order that an individual has so agar you know tomorrow i go and i give a gali to somebody ke tu pagal hai or you're 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 mental and there's something wrong with you and you're the worst person i ever know in my life it's going to cause some psychological pain and that is going to be a psychological disorder it's going to create some pida that you call and that pida is going to manifest as the law of karma says that one day you will get a result for it because you've created a certain action and there will be a reaction as a consequence of it same way that is the individual order um i am blessed with the body we are all blessed with bodies but if we abuse the body you eat all sorts of junk food every single day and you stuff your cheeks and you just uh, sit like a couch potato you don't get the right exercise you don't take care of yourself you don't do the right things ultimately that result is going to add up and it's going to make you and or us an unhealthy uh, ill person who is not going to be able to enjoy the fruits of life then you have a family there's an order involved in the family as well because this is where things get dynamic i as an individual play a certain role within my family and uh, there's a family dynamic that has to be maintained uh the family dynamic rolls up to um uh the community the community to the society the society to the nation the nation to the globe and all of these are manifest orders in fact not only the whole nation or the globe of uh, you know human beings but even ecological order because my disrupting something in one place is going to create a disturbance in some other place and so when we perform actions and we, we perform uh, actions which are in keeping with this order which preserve the order we by default earn punya because it is handled by the cosmic laws and when we perform actions which disrupt this order in any way <laughs> such as uh, those protests that we see in jnu and other places it creates a lot of disruption and uh, it uh, disturbs the fabric of society disturbs the fabric of the individual it breaks families it does a lot of uh, harm and therefore it is associated with uh, pap karma so i i kind of skipped ahead a little bit to dharma and society but we we talk about three uh, dharmas over here samanya dharma vishesha dharma and swadharma so many times uh, okay chalo let's talk about samanya first samanya dharma means common sense dharma i should not hurt somebody i should not steal from somebody i should not go murder somebody i should not go uh, i don't know the, do things which are going to be obviously looked down upon by every single person with some common sense that's samanya dharma uh, simple simple uh, things that make you a decent human being basically now vishesha dharma are distinguishing factors within each individual so as a male there are certain dharmas i have to follow as a female there are certain dharmas somebody else has to follow as a son there's a certain dharma as a father there's a certain dharma as a mother there's a certain dharma everybody has a certain type of dharma based on their different peculiarities it could also be based on their gunas it could be based on their profession it could be based on their jati it could be based on their interest it could be based on many things and so all of these vishesha dharmas come into account so in the gita also krishna bhagwan uh, tells arjuna he uh, that uh, it is better to do your own duty imperfectly than to go do somebody else's duty perfectly 
So if we take the example of a corporation, and let's say I'm an engineer, and uh, I don't really like engineering too much, and there's an accountant, and I go tell the accountant that you know what, you don't come to work tomorrow. I'll do your uh, paperwork. It's not going to work well. I'll get fired for that stupid uh, stupidity, and I should get fired for that because I'm trying to do somebody else's dharma when I should be doing my own. And now this whole thing, this whole my choice, the Pika Padukone style generation that we've we've entered. There's this whole idea that swadharma means doing what makes me happy. That is not true. Swadharma is a Venn diagram of samanya and vishesha dharma. That which needs to be done by every member of society and those peculiar dharmas that are unique to you, when you mesh them together, that determines what your swadharma is. And yes, that also involves your likes and dislikes, but it is not the predominant factor. It is one of the um, secondary factors over there. So these are the three types of dharmas that we have, or categories you can call it. Now a society which adheres to dharma is prosperous, and I think this is more or less self-explanatory because if everybody is doing the 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 needful, and everybody is playing their role effectively, and uh, everybody is contributing to the welfare of every single level at which dharma is manifesting, from the individual to the family to the community to the society to the nation to the world to the ecology to the ecosystem. Then we know for a fact that there is going to be the greatest good that's generated, and therefore a society which adheres to dharma cannot but be prosperous. And uh, obviously, as an inverse uh, idea, if dharma is not followed, we are going to disturb the order, and that's going to create all forms of chaos. Now, um, when we speak about uh, this imbalance, you know, we, when we were in school, we uh, we had this example about. what would happen if you destroy all the mosquitoes because then uh, the 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 frogs would um, die out because frogs and other uh, creatures may consume mosquitoes and it is a very simplistic example obviously but just to give an idea and then if the frogs die out then the snakes would um, their population would start dwindling when the snake population starts dwindling the rats would proliferate when the rats proliferate they will invade the granaries and you know it will it will mess up our food supply so we it was just one example to show that when you disrupt the order in one place it has a whip effect and this whip whip effect uh, carries over to other domains outside of that domain and it creates a lot of uh, imbalance in the world and society and uh, the the fact of the matter is however intelligent we think we are we really are not because we don't truly know the repercussions of our actions completely we can't say for sure uh, you know there's this whole debate uh, in china in fact about should we be seeding clouds to create more rainfall and then there are certain imbalances associated with that as well it can create certain pollutions and we don't know how far this can travel but the fact of the matter is that it is only creatures such as ourselves that are capable of creating imbalance because we have free will but imagine a world and i'm not saying there should be a world like this i'm just saying that imagine a world without humans the world would function relatively well we are the ones who can quote and quote screw it up and so therefore that's a bad thing but there's also a good thing associated with it we can also make it better and that's a beautiful part because uh, we we have that uh, uh, gradient of being able to mess up the world but also put it together whereas other creatures who don't have free will can't do much about it they just exist whereas we thrive we can thrive or we can destroy ourselves so that's a choice and um, uh, yeah so this this is basically what we spoke about that we have the capacity to transform disorder into order and that will earn even greater punya now one of the principles of dharma is to maximize benefit and minimize harm 
so that means how can i perform actions that are in keeping with dharma that that benefit the maximum number of people over the maximum expanse of space through a very long time into the future looking out for the long term delayed gratification sorts of benefit for the world at large and so those actions are the ones which are dharmic as opposed to the ones where you have instant gratification this applies not only to society and to economic principles and to uh, all sorts of decision making at the country nation level but also to our individual lives for example who wants to go to college if there's nothing that's going to be at the end of it nobody wants to spend 4 years 5 years 6 years studying unless there's a reward and so uh, imagine a, a high school dropout compared to a college graduate the high school drop dropout can say you know what uh, 12th pass hona what mood do i need i can get a decent job as a cashier somewhere fine but then you have the rest of your life to think about there's the other guy who's working hard for 4 5 6 years he'll have a much better paying job he or she and uh, can retire early and can do many good things and can contribute and therefore this thing about keeping in time or uh, keeping in mind the maximum frame of time where the greater good is able to manifest is very much something that's part of our culture and uh, you know many times people question that okay why is it that when indians go abroad uh, they tend to do better than other native communities in those regions it's this delayed gratification idea that you know you you train and you kind of like take those hard knocks in life beforehand so that later on you can be more or less stable so okay so this is one thing um and also when we say maximizing benefits and minimizing harm we are not talking about socialism because that in my view is not a good system at all it's a it's very broken system because socialism what it tries to do is it tries to replace fairness with justice oh sorry justice with fairness and if we accept the laws of karma that every creature every um person is deriving certain uh, results of their own uh, karmic fruits then uh, you know there there's the sense of equal distribution does not really come into the picture so that's a problem now i want to as a last topic because i think we are coming close to the hour is i want to discuss uh, issues with secularism and in the context of dharma like what what exactly is the problem now when we talk about dharma we've spoken so much about it and it cannot just be reduced to a single category like religion so today that is what we see being done right that okay there is something called isai dharma which is christianity there is something called muslim dharma there is something called hindu dharma dharma are not of different quote unquote types dharma is the order so what these things what you call christianity or islam or sanatan dharma they are um uh, stark in stark contrast to each other a theology is not the same as dharma and so to use the word dharma as religion and only as religion is actually doing a great injustice uh so because we speak about the secular narrative the moment we use the word secular reduce dharma to religion because it's going to look upon our sanatana dharma as another religion and that's a second is that uh, when we use the word secular we are mapping dharma to the abrahamic framework and the reason i say this is because secularism arose in medieval europe not medieval a little bit after that um uh, in order to combat the supremacy of the church and uh, this came about in the france and uh, england region where the church was actually dominating the the royalty and uh, you know they were determining how people should live their lives and there was a counterbalance of the king and the government officials who wanted to stop the intervention of the church in a person's life and so they came about you know there were revolutions and there were wars and all were fought and they finally came about with this idea of secularism that there should be a separation quote unquote of church and state 
so if secularism is a, a separation of church and state how can it apply to dharma when dharma is the very foundation in the fabric of a society so this whole uh, thing about sarva dharma sambhavana or as uh, some of my friends call sarva dharma vada pav <laughs> because it's 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 junk it doesn't make any sense and uh, secularism attempts to divorce dharma from state affairs the role of every single statesman whether it's a leader whether it's a prime minister whether it's a havaldar whoever it is it is their role to uphold dharma now imagine what is happening when we separate dharma away from the role of an a state official to preserve dharma then we've created all sorts of paradoxes and problems in society and so therefore even this whole thing about secularism and dharma it's an incompatible principle when we speak about uh, the concept of sanatan dharma and last topic closing topic in fact uh, so we've all heard ahimsa parmo dharma and there are two extreme opinions related to the statement the people who have a very aggressive disposition they say nahi nahi this statement is complete bakwas it is complete junk there is no such thing as ahimsa parmo dharma if we accept this we will destroy ourselves as a civilization because we need to develop certain uh, uh, marital warfare type of uh, uh, framework to protect ourselves that is also true but it is not completely true the then the second extreme is the false idealism which says yes ahimsa is par- parmo dharma under all situations and this is the gandhian disposition where uh, there's a false idealism which implies that there's never going to be a time of strife or war and life is going to go on peacefully and we 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 should only uh, practice non violence at every single juncture in life the correct way to understand ahimsa parmo dharma first of all it is a true statement it is there in the mahabharat and the way to understand this well is to look at the concept of global maxima and local maxima so suppose uh, let's take an example if i were to say that uh, uh, i have a knife in my hand and i stab somebody in the abdomen with the knife and i draw blood would you call that dharma or would you call it adharma and i think most people it was adharma but what if i said that i was actually on a battlefield and uh, that uh, knife was a surgical tool and i was using it to uh, pull out a bullet from my uh, uh, comrade's uh, abdomen now it is dharma given the right context you can switch the understanding of dharma uh, from adharma based on the situation based on the time based on the place now if i did not stab that person of course it caused a lot of pain that stabbing process but it would have taken the life of that person later on because it uh, you know there would have been uh, uh, organ failure and lot of other problems so you need to remove the foreign object you need to clot the blood you need to uh, stitch it up all of these things so therefore this thing about global maxima is very important uh, uh, concept second is uh, many people say okay why should you fight a war war involves himsa is that not true of course it is true there's a lot of killing there's bloodshed lives are lost families are destroyed war is bad then in that case uh, krishna bhagwan who who uh, encouraged arjuna to stand his ground and to continue fighting the kurukshetra yuddha he would have been the greatest adharmi but the answer to that is that uh, that is only looking at a local situation that yes within the battlefield of kurukshetra between fighting a war and not fighting a war the war is violent but what if we extrapolate that across the whole bharatvarsha and across time imagine the amount of violence that would have ensued had duryodhana continued to stay as a leader had he continued an- annexing and destroying other kingdoms uh, destroying the livelihood of the economy of society and therefore this war of the kurukshetra was like the knife stab of the surgeon the surgical stab in order to create a greater longer term good and that is what we mean by global maxima so ahimsa is indeed the paramo dharma 
considering we look at the local sorry we look at the global maxima and not a local maxima so um on that uh, note i i uh, conclude uh, this uh, particular talk and uh, i will just close off with a shanti mantra and hand it off to the host ओम पूर्णमदूर्णमदूर्णमदर्चते पूर्ण से पूर्णमादा पूर्णमेवशिष्यते ओं शाति 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 हरि ओं श्रीगुरु नम हरि ओं लाइक टू आस्क यू योर जर्नी यू नो वॉट ड्रू यू टूवर्ड्स सीकिंग दिस नॉलेज एंड टू बी सो पैशनेट अबाउट इट Uh, could you give us a small life story your personal life story yes so uh, thank you very much uh, because uh, this is not a question i get asked often and uh, there's a very interesting story behind it um when i actually came to the us uh, for uh, my college uh, i grew up in a very quote unquote secular household and uh, you know temple going mandir going would be once a year maybe at most if even that and uh, i did not have too much exposure to the tradition apart from what my what i saw my grandparents practicing because they were very devout in their worship but once i came to the us um, something very interesting happened which is uh, um my grandfather passed away under unusual circumstances and uh, i i felt a little guilty about not spending too much time with him when i was actually in mumbai uh, i went back and i partied with my friends i did all the stuff i shouldn't have done then when he departed i um, i started questioning that you know what happens when a person leaves this body is there an afterlife you know or what is what is this atma what is what is the self what is the nature of reality and so i started asking these very difficult questions to myself and i was not able to find answers so i figured i need to go to other people and i tried to explore different uh, um, things I, i i took a stab at uh, different philosophies i was not satisfied at the end of it but through a series of what one may call coincidences but i would say it's prarabdha karma it was a uh, some stranger on the streets of mumbai handed me a book of uh, of uh, vedanta teachings out of the blue and I, i i don't know who sent this like why it happened how it happened so on and so forth but uh, uh, that was the book i read on my journey back to the us uh, because i returned back from my summer vacations and uh, you know I, the rest is history so bless that gentleman like who who gave me these books and uh, that is when i got my first exposure to the teaching of sanatan dharma at the age of 21 2021 which is pretty late but better late than never i i think uh, 2020 any age is uh, good enough to start <laughs> but uh, apart from that one more thing i wanted to ask you is that uh though we are trying to put this narrative that you know and we are trying to put it across that this should, should be taught in school and it should be taught but uh, we know that's really a, a far fetched uh, thought you know but i would like to ask you you know uh, how are you uh, passing it on to your uh, children and uh, what do you see is lacking in today's parents uh, because the family plays a big role in passing on these uh, wonderful traditions and knowledge so what would you suggest you know we can think about schools having it and beginning it and everything but what are we doing as parents and what what are you doing personally if you could just share that yes so i agree with you uh, that uh, there are many concerns i myself have a lot of trepidation with regards to being taught in schools because that implies that the, the, the let's say our syllabus today is not quite adequate to pass on dharmic teachings and there will always be a lot of controversy and it's going to create a lot of problems and it's better always to learn under a traditional guru 
under a ved patshala under a gurukulam uh, under um, uh, more i would say governable um, situations where where you know what's going on as opposed to a school board now uh, the the place i think we are all faltering the place where my own family has faltered and I, i'm not seeing that in a negative sense it is a circumstantial thing uh, you know it's it's a product we are all a product of our environment ultimately and so by not following our symbols and traditions in fact i, I had given a talk on the importance of festivals and culture many people today i see uh, don't uh, pay enough attention to to their own history uh if we understand the indian history we will see that we have been a very great and very strong civilization in part because of our stability as a people derived from the dharmic principles so it, you know it takes a, a curious mind to know what we stand for and a curious mind is a very potent mind so i would say parents myself others we should develop more and more curiosity to know where we come from so that we can pass it down to our children the next thing is that uh, we usually defer to the west when it comes to ideas we somehow think that until and unless we are validated by the west or until and unless it involves certain monetary gains it's not worth knowing about so today you know i have been seeing the news that these days in india kids are learning how to code from the age of 5 but i don't see that discussion happening from parents that okay let's teach our kids sanskrit from the age of 5 or let's teach them how to chant mantras from a young age let's enter them into uh geeta co- chanting competitions business or some chanting competitions all of these things are missing the next thing is that uh, many people i see especially in the s- the spiritual adhyatmic world they are making a grand mistake which is to directly jump into vedanta and the upanishads because the teachings of vedanta are so abstract that it only starts making sense at a later stage in life uh, you know once you've at least crossed your teenagers or at least gone into college not before that but what keeps you grounded as a human being as a person as a hindu as a sanatana dharmi are your symbols your cultures your puranic stories or itihasas your role models such as looking at uh, shri ram bhagwan as uh, maryada purushottam looking upon krishna bhagwan as the purna avatara looking upon arjuna as the hero today we have replaced our heroes with the marvel comic heroes we care more about iron man superman spider man than we do about our great legendary figures who actually lived and who thrived in this country and who passed on this uh, great teaching to us so the you know uh, my teacher used to say that the spirit dies without the symbol and we begin to uh, chip away at the symbols of our cultural symbols we we have given up dharma for secularism we have given up gurukulam patshala for convent education we have given up diwali for halloween we don't celebrate diwali as americans in the us indians may celebrate it i don't see white people and black people celebrating diwali over here why should indian people in mumbai and delhi have halloween parties why should we have christmas parties why should you know i have many hindu friends who go to the church to do a christmas mass i don't see christians going to the mandir during navratri so this thing about uh, western hegemony where the western perspective has taken over our lives and we start granting superiority to them and to seek validation from them that also has to change we have to adopt our cultural symbols we have to wear them with pride we have to not be uh, guilty about being of a certain jati which is what what's being made uh, prevalent today and uh, we have to stop carrying civilizational guilt because uh, rajat mitra ji who's uh, written a great book on psychology about the infidel next door and he spoke spoke about uh, uh, what is it called a post uh, generational trauma we've been traumatized as a nation of uh, hindus into thinking that we are an inferior species 
and uh, just as a person who is traumatized in life is not able to get through it without any external help we have begun to seek validation externally in order to pull us out of this mess whereas we should start uh, looking more inwards and finding out uh, more about our own journey and passing it on to our children so what i am trying to do is uh, you know my daughter i i i spend uh, 10 to 15 minutes every single day with her doing my prayers and then she will listen to me and i don't care if she listens or not i'll still do them because uh, it's not so much about a 2 year old paying attention but the samskara will be formed i subconsciously looked at my grandparents doing puja and then that samskara formed in me i didn't realize it it happened after two decades so uh, these uh, what do you call it uh, subtle things matter a lot and you know a family that prays together stays together is a true statement as well take your children to the temple enter them in bharatanatyam classes enter them in sangeet because uh, compared to like western pop music which is it's not necessarily bad but uh, sangeet you know you have bhajans you have devotional stotrams all of these things it will have an impact uh, one a uh, controversial and unpopular opinion I'm, i would also give is uh, get your kids into some form of martial arts because uh, i started karate in fact two weeks ago i'm i'm a very big kid now but uh, the the reasons that it develops discipline these days kya hota hai na we don't have the respect for elders but when you bow down to a sensei or a sifu and when you are looking at them with a you know there's an authority figure who's kind who's helping you grow who's forming discipline who's uh, helping you build your motor skills is going to be very helpful to you in all areas of your life and i dare say if a civilizational war breaks out you will be prepared you should not be afraid of uh, drawing out weapons when required so i know this is very unpopular but it is a truth so it's not a question it's just an observation which uh, you know when i was a kid uh, while talking to my grandfather he uh, was just discussing something and he said that no dharyati iti dharma okay and uh, out of curiosity i joined almost 5 minutes late this talk but when i started going you started saying all those things uh, i i found that yes your uh, in, you know indeed the very in depth research uh, you know was summed up in that one sentence which is dharyati uh, ti dharma but the other thing which i thought that yes our daily prayer and other things are a part of a dharma which is considered and in purusha sukta it is said that you know sahastra shirsha purusha sastraksha sastrapat and in that same rigveda there is a question that kasmi devaya hamisha vidhema that's where i i tend to get lost somewhere that how does both things are fitting in together in the same book could you please uh, if you can just uh, explain it or uh, you know thanks sure so can can i ask you one question uh, the first one i understood the purusha sukta sarsashita purusha sarsakshita sapat can you explain in hindi the second one please because i'm not that proficient in sanskrit if you explain it i might be able to uh, stitch uh, them together kis devta ki pooja kare hum kis devta ko ahuti de hum kasmai devaya harsha vidhem so the the first in purusha sukta this is very beautiful in fact i had that question for a very long time so what does it mean that sarsa shisha purusha like thousand heads are the heads of purusha thousand hands are the hands of purusha thousand feet are the feet of purusha so this purusha over here is the same as ishvara and the thousand is only an indicator of koti matlab countless the thousand is just a placeholder number and so because the whole jagat mein jo agar aap agar hum sapna dekhte ho raat ko to whatever we manifest in our dream 
you're talking to a dream person for all we know this could be a dream somebody may pinch us and we'll wake up from it it's possible i'm i'm thinking this is real but you can only dismiss a dream when you wake up to reality that's the point and so every single head every single foot every single tail every single creature in your dream is only you that is a fact so same with this whole jagat whatever there is every single thing every single person every single object situation time place whatever is only a manifestation of that purusha so that is what that purusha sukta uh, talks about in the beginning and that's why it says that you know that uh, uh, everything came out from purusha the two legged creatures the four legged creatures the you know the brahmanas the vaishya shudras all of these things right? because it says ki everything is purusha so everything came from purusha now which uh, deity you should worship there's a very beautiful concept in our shastra uh, of um, ishta devata so this may or may not be part of Ram- ramayana i don't think it is part of ramayana but it's a later story that somebody made very beautiful and so when ram bhagwan goes to uh, uh, rameshwaram matlab he builds a shivalinga to shankar bhagwan which he calls uh, rameshwaram and so he tells uh, shankar bhagwan that see you are aap ram ki ishwar ho therefore rameshwara the same sanskrit word can also mean ram is ishwara so shankar bhagwan says nahi nahi aap ishwar ho therefore rameshwara so both of them are praising each other now vishnu sahasnam mein there's another thing that uh, पार्वती उच किमेकमेवतामेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमेकमे
a specific result. Now, how can we, could you tell me how we could sort of deal with this problem of explaining? Pranam Karun sahab, thank you very much for the question. Uh, I have thought about this a lot. And uh, I usually come up with these very funky thought examples or thought uh, experiments. So there's one way in which this can be nicely explained. Imagine hypothetically that there is a person on a deathbed. They have maybe like 10 seconds to live. But in those last 10 seconds, for whatever reason, the guy takes a gun and shoots the doctor. And then the guy dies. The result has to follow that person somewhere. Therefore, we say that it follows in the next life because this life does not have enough time for the suffering to take place based on that consequence. So that is one way to explain that if the world is fair and if the laws are fair, the result has to come. And therefore, if you commit a heinous crime towards the very last second of your life, where does the result go? So that is one extreme example in which uh, one can rationalize it. There's another example where uh, if um, uh, this, I believe, a Westerner had asked uh, the Shringiri Jagadguru or Kanchi Jagadguru, some Jagadguru, ki, how do you explain this thing about reincarnation and rebirth and all? Like, what does it mean? So the Jagadguru did not give an answer directly. He said, do one thing. Tomorrow, go to the children's maternity uh, ward in the hospital and uh, come back to me and then we'll discuss. So then that guy went over there, the Westerner. And then he saw that uh, there were some kids who were born healthy, some born disabled, some born with certain conditions, whatever, genetic issues. And so then he realized that, see, if the world is the way it is, and it is supposed to be a fair world governed by certain laws, then why should there be a disparity between the births of children also when they have not committed any actions in this life? They have not done anything to deserve it in this life. Therefore, one says that the karma carried over from the previous life. So in the first example, we saw that an action that you perform like the shooting of the doctor will carry over to the next life. And here we see an example of the karmas carrying over from the previous life. Now, as to why um, there is a delay and what is the delay, whether it's a two-day, two-month, as, as you said, ki, well, what is a delay factor and what determines that? This is something uh, related to the theory of complexity, which I believe that our karmic teachings explain perfectly well. So if, if I may... Uh, speak for a couple of minutes on this. It's very uh, uh, insightful what I learned. We have something called a two-body system. So suppose there are only two things in the whole universe. There's the earth and the moon. Nothing else. There's no sun, Jupiter, nothing. Then it is very easy for us to put that into a computer and figure out what will be the exact, almost exact location of the moon's orbit after like 10,000 years or 20,000 years or 30,000 years. We can say with confidence when the next eclipse will be after 50,000 years. But the moment you introduce a third body into the system, such as even a thing like the sun or Jupiter or whatever, the equation starts breaking down because it becomes more indeterministic. And this is what you call the three-body problem. Now imagine that we live in this world which is embodied by countless living forms. Not just three, but countless. There's, there are more bacteria in our intestines than there are humans who have ever lived on the planet. And everywhere around us, there's a proliferation of life. And every one of these life forms comes with its own history of past karma. If something happens to me today, it's not going to affect only me, but it's going to affect my parents, my wife and my daughter and everybody. And so every result that a person undergoes has to be somehow managed within the result that the other people in that environment also experience. 
and therefore there is uh, to consider all of these complexities at once uh that is why there is a time factor delay and that time factor is all handled by ishwara's equations the karmic laws uh there is a follow up question to that like you said that uh, people carry their uh, you know their karmas in the next birth if it's not able to complete in this birth uh similarly one of our audience members asked that does it carry on to our future generations like i will suffer my karma but will it also pass on to my generations very beautiful very nice question this is uh and the answer to that is no but it may look like that and the reason it is no is because let's say i perform a certain wrong action uh or let's say i don't do puja of my kuldevi or i displease my kuldevi or something of that so let's put it that way it is not my negligence of action that is going to be transferred over to my child or grandchild or whoever rather based on their karma of actions that they themselves have uh, brought about they will be born in this situation which will give a result for their own actions so that means that from one perspective it may look that i am the cause of their suffering but the right perspective is that they themselves have brought themselves into this environment to undergo the results of their own actions so uh, you know but the pida will going, is going to come to me ultimately because i am the one who is going to suffer to see my uh, children grandchildren suffer and therefore it is it is it is my own accountability but it doesn't transfer over uh thank you prashant ji uh one more question that i received via the chat is that uh, uh the the bad karmas that i do is it because it gets uh, you know impressioned in my mind and that's why it carries on to the soul uh does it is it that how is it uh, the way how it works uh there are two factors to it so every karma has something called karma phala and uh, the karma also leaves behind a samskara the sams- like you know the, the I, i think very visually so the way i think about it is that imagine that you have a nice uh, plush sofa if a person has sat on it for a while there will be a compression you will see that uh, you know there's an indentation on the sofa and then after a point the sofa starts lifting again it becomes normal after a few hours but you know when somebody has got up that indentation is there when i perform a given action i will get the result of that karma also but along with it one of the results manifests as a samskara or a vasana in my mind which is like that compression that indentation and therefore i am more prone to perform that karma again let me let me give a few examples of what i mean by that let's say i have never ever tried something in my life called dosa and i i go to this uh, udp restaurant and i try dosa for the first time then i really like the taste now i want to go again and i want to go again i want to go again i want to go every day for breakfast but if i had never tried it i would never want to do it because a samskara had not been formed another example is that imagine that you have a perfect cone and uh, you know you're dropping water on top of it now the first drop is going to determine the sequence of all the other drops and it's going to become a river eventually because the first drop will pull the others and you know so on and so forth so therefore these vasanas uh, are ultimately formed and uh, so those are the two results of the actions that if i do a pap karma it's going to leave a negative vasana behind and it's also going to generate a negative karma that i will suffer and i'm also more prone to doing that now let's take another example of addiction people we know are addicted to primarily three things right in life one is um, you might be addicted to drugs or alcohol or something you might be addicted to video games you might be addicted to pornography these are the three problems that people usually face and many other addictions but 
as you do more of that action the addiction actually grows stronger and stronger and stronger and so not only do you get the uh, karma phala of it but you are actually more prone to doing those same karmas repeatedly and the only way to break out of it is by to break the loop and when you start breaking the loop that decompression effect happens where the sofa gets raised again and then you lose that drive to go down that route and so the only way to actually counter these karmas is by doing this is what you call uh, prati uh, uh, pratipaksha bhavana that means that do the opposite of what you're trying to get rid of so suppose i am a very confused person i don't like spending money and i'm i'm, I'm like uh, you know i have a very tight wallet tight pocket then maybe once in a while just for the sake of it i should go out on the streets and uh, do some charity just for the sake of it even if i don't feel like doing it because my guru says fake it to make it in the beginning you may just like hand out uh, food packets to people because you know you think you should do it but after a point you will start smiling and then you will want to do more and more of that so that fake it to make it principle is very important suppose you are very jealous about somebody's success that are isne itna paisa banaya look at me i'm such a loser in life but for a moment just go and thank that uh, congratulate that person that you know what good job uh, i think you've done really well and uh, you deserve it that person is obviously going to compliment you back and thank you in a good way and then you'll actually feel happy for the person so that pratipaksha bhavana is a very beautiful way to counter pap karma and to start doing the right thing so that you build punya uh, a balance of punya karma see talking about the hinduism i have uh, always watched uh, from uh, 50 to 70 years we have seen different type of hinduism okay we are just going to temples okay chanting the god name that's the you can say that's just the hinduism okay now we can say so what is the perspective of it and uh, we can say we are talking about dharma but uh, the people in the people's mind there is adham okay the families are breaking we have many of the the things we can see that's that's adham only we can say so what's the reason for it um if if i understand the question are, are you um devanshi is it like what is the reason for adharma see like so families are breaking we are uh, we are uh, means dahej ye le rahe hain we are there are many things okay like we are thinking good for the people okay but inside we are uh, very jealous about them right and it's not only in here one two areas it's you can say whole hindi community is like that you can say today and our gurus are also supporting it you can say a uh, uh, gurus are sorry supporting it supporting it okay like good you good uh, be good yourself not be others hmm. so uh, see the reason for like if we go back philosophically the reason for any adharma is actually in avidya so there's one uh, there's one very beautiful um, um, teaching in the gita it says dhyayato vishayam tumsa sangasteshu pujayate sangat sanjayate kama kama krodho bijayate krodha bhavati sammoha sammoha smriti vibramah smriti bramshat buddhinasha buddhinasha pranashiti so what this means is ki the first instance of adharma that we begin to commit is by some inkling some minor attachment to something or the other so let's say you know you you're uh, <laughs> you're let's let's assume you're married as a guy and you're walking down the street every day to work and you always see this very attractive shopkeeper and you know first time you're uh, you're you will walk 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 and for one second you'll turn your gaze and then you'll continue walk second day you'll go your gaze will last a little longer third day you'll go a little longer fourth day you'll actually enter the shop to speak to the person right 
So what happens is that the first thing Dayat Vishaf Kunsa Sangas Teshu, that Sangaha, that small bit of association, Teshu Pujate, Sangha Sanjayate Kama. From there, that that uh, flame of desire starts to develop from the mild association. And then from there, you know, things such as anger, Kama Krodobi Jayate. Why does anger happen? Because you go and you go talk to that girl and stuff like responding nicely, she comes and slaps you. So then then there'll be anger. Kare. I wanted something good out of it and I got this instead. So the anger. Uh, or suppose you do get what you're wanting, then it leads to loba, greed. So if I don't get what I want, I become angry. If I get what I want, I become greedy because I want more and more and more of it. And then kroda bhavati samoha, samoha matlab I get deluded. Once you get uh, angry, you become delusional, you lose control over your senses, you lose control over dharma versus adharma. So the reason I'm mentioning this progression is because it's a very beautiful psychological progression. And also at the same time, this when you spoke about dharma and adharma and why we are more prone to adharma is because at some point in our progression, we have lost the way. So therefore that uh, sammoha has taken place. Sammoha, smriti, vibramaha. Smriti are the shastras, the good teachings, the good lessons that we've accumulated in our life. They get lost. Vibramaha. Matlab, it's confusion all over the place. Smriti, brahmshat, when the good things that you've learned get destroyed, the entire buddhi gets destroyed. Buddhi nashat, and when the buddhi gets destroyed, pranashati, it leads to utter and complete destruction. So all forms of problems in society, all issues, all concerns that we uh, we find today are a consequence of not knowing the distinction between dharma and adharma and to misuse our capacity to choose between the two. When we choose adharma for dharma, then we will create chaos and there will be all sorts of complications. Uh, namaste, uh, Prachanji. So uh, my question is basically, um, it actually comes from the last thing which you just talked about. Um, do you consider fasting to be a good way to control maybe greed um, as well as addiction, which you just mentioned about? And uh, I actually um, also have uh, another question. So do you want me to ask it right away or maybe just once you answer this question? Sure. Uh, I might forget the first one. I might ask you again, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay okay uh so the second question is basically um just like you mentioned that um our um maybe our karmas or our bucket of karmas um will will actually form as a part of our choices which we have made uh throughout our lifetime and uh being a part of sanatana dharm um we actually believe that ahimsa is our dharm ahimsa pamudharm so um being a disciple of um, Jainism, I've always learned that uh, we really have to consider every other life equal to us. Uh, and hence, we should follow the vegetarian diet, so on, uh, so on and so forth. But I've seen many people who are following um, Sanatana Dharma. Uh, let's uh, take the example of Rajputs. But they don't really believe in um, vegetarianism that way. So I just wanted to understand what actually gave away to these different uh, thought processes in the Sanatana Dharma itself. Thank you. So I, I already forgot the first one. So I'm going to start with the second one. <laughs> Sorry. I have a memory of a goldfish. But uh, so let's start with the second because it is actually much longer. Uh, and uh, are, are we short on time? Uh, I just want to confirm. Five minutes, seven minutes, something. Okay. So the thing is, Ahimsa is indeed um, Paramo Dharma. But uh, if I may mildly disagree with the concept of Ahimsa in Jainism. And I, I can tell you why. Uh, I, before, in, during my secular days, I, I mentioned that I explored certain philosophies. 
the first one that i spent two years studying is actually jainism before i uh, um before i found some problems but uh, the the reason i i say this is because ahimsa paramo dharma has to be interpreted uh, uh, in a certain fashion and the jain interpretation is called paripurna ahimsa it means that uh, you should be ahim uh, practice ahimsa at a local and a global level and you should never participate in anything that creates any form of local harm also and what we say uh, especially in the teachings of dharma is that in order to preserve the global uh, maxima you need to sometimes uh, uh, do some ahim, uh, do some himsa at a local level so for example uh, jain jain darshana came about through the shramana dharma shramana dharma matlab uh, the sanyasi sort of uh, you know ascetic lifestyle and because it came about mostly due to an, as an ascetic religion it did not completely codify the duties of a householder or of a soldier of a warrior of all of these people and therefore there is a missing piece over there it is very good when it comes to uh, sanyasis but it is not so applicable to non sanyasis now even within sanatana dharma within what we call like these days hinduism the sanyasis are supposed to follow paripurna ahimsa the same way the jains follow it except that in sanatana dharma there is a distinction between the dharma of a sanyasi and the duty of a grihastha so as our colonel ji also who is over here would uh, attest that you know sometimes when we fight wars and we have to create certain bloodshed it is for the greater good today if you have insurgents coming in from pakistan who are invading kashmir our soldiers need to go into battle and to destroy them so that is one point second point is that if you look at uh, uh, what do you call uh, this all life forms be equal that is also i don't know if jainism actually believes that but i don't think it does but sanatana dharma certainly does not accept that uh the 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 value of a certain life form depends upon the indriyas that it has and also within that there is a gradient for example let's say today we eat a plant uh we we all consider eating plants safe whether you are a vegetarian or non vegetarian you will eat plant because they are the primary producer they are also ekendriya jeevas because they only have the sense of touch they don't have the other senses associated and the fewer indriyas that you have the fewer himsa is uh, the, the lesser himsa is involved in its uh, consumption second point is <clears throat> the plant why it's more dharmic to eat a plant and i don't mean to offend any non vegetarians but i'm giving you an ecological reason is because it is a primary producer it uses the least amount of resources and it only relies upon water and sunlight and uh, this whole uh, pho- through the photosynthetic process you are able to de- derive glucose and that becomes your nutrition so the plant is actually ecologically the most efficient form of uh, uh, life to consume for our sustenance when you eat an animal there is something called entropy that is being lost so you know when uh, we go to the doctor to check our fever if it's about 98.6 degrees fahrenheit we say there is a fever constantly we are actually glowing in the infrared uh, spectrum at the intensity of a 100 watt light bulb every second that is how much energy output we are giving out through heat body heat that is so therefore the animal suppose you eat a chicken or you eat a cow or you eat a goat or whatever you eat the amount of calories you'll get from there the animal would have eaten a lot more calorie content in terms of plant in order for you to get a little bit of content in terms of animal so you are actually wasting that through entropy and you are using up a lot of land lot of resources lot of water you have to nullify the uh, uh, acids when the blood is released before it gets into the river a lot of problems are there sanitary problems slaughterhouse mein bahut problems hote hain 
so therefore it is not very ethical to eat animals for a different number of reasons okay so therefore we all agree on that part now i will make one caveat suppose you are a human being that lives in the north pole we know ke wahan kuch jhad baad nahi ukta it's only uh, you have to probably fish so what what these uh, eskimos do is they'll bore a hole into the ice and then they'll let down their uh, whatever bait and then they'll eat the fish if they find some fish so in those rare circumstances it is good because you have no other option another example is that suppose you live in coastal area areas or uh, in an island or whatever so over there what happens is two things first of all the the water is saline so you cannot do agriculture very easily and second is you have to rely on the the fish content so okay chalo in certain coastal areas if necessary you can eat and that also there's a gradient that is better to eat fish than it is to eat a goat or a chicken or whatever because there's a there's a distinction involved over there and lastly let's say there's a supply chain problem in world which means that uh, if you live in the us or if you live in india or wherever you live but you are ordering imported vegetarian food like there's a there's a uh, grain called quinoa which is uh, very popular these days in the us and it is grown in south america so are you creating more pollution by consuming quinoa non locally than you could be by maybe eating some non vegetarian food locally it's a good question that's what i mean to say so the there's an algorithm over here or a heuristic which means that if possible be as vegetarian as you can under all possible circumstances but if there are exceptions you can accommodate them but uh, those exceptions have to be real exceptions and not excuses like if you're in north pole that's an exception it's not an excuse i forgot your first question i'm sorry as i as i thought i would uh that that was a uh, really nice explanation but actually i just wanted to understand the distinction between um some some uh, you know disciples of sanatana dharma uh, being okay about having non veg um, oh. as one of their meals and um whereas the um uh, example is uh, for the jainism again that they very strictly follow that uh, we have to be abide by non violence when we make our food choices um and the first question was about fasting being um yes <laughs> light bulb <laughs> um so the so the yeah, certain communities in uh, bharat uh, hindu communities uh, do consume meat uh, because of uh, family tradition because of habit and all i may not necessarily agree with that to be honest uh again like let's take an example of our ancient times but there was certain instances somebody told me let's say it's a tentative fact i'm not sure of it that the pandavas and ram bhagwan and all ate meat in the forest when they were in vanvas and all of these things i say those are very exceptional circumstances today if somebody puts meat into a forest forest mein you can't eat anything first of all you you don't know what plant is going to kill you half of the leaves that are uh, you know not edible and some of them are poisonous uh, it's very difficult to know of course there's no agriculture in the forest so what do you rely upon sometimes you may have to rely upon animal product if you are stuck in a forest these uh, you know suppose you have a uh, kshatriyas suppose you have soldiers you are at the the high altitude you are fighting at a glacier you are fighting in kashmir maybe there's no vegetarian food or available around there those are exceptional circumstances you may need to eat uh, more meat and also to keep your protein content high it's it's acceptable under those very rare instances when i say rare it's like less than 1% of the population but now if somebody goes to kfc or if you're a, if you're a rajput which is supposed to be a kshatriya or you're a jat you're supposed to be a kshatriya and you go to kfc you go to dominos you go to mcdonalds you start eating meat over there that is not justifiable it's a very uh, lazy excuse i would say so those things uh, should not be i, I wouldn't say tolerated because we're not trying to be intolerant but those things should be uh, questioned very very strongly
and the first question about fasting does it help uh, build uh, will power was it like does it what was the fasting uh so the fasting uh, i wanted to ask about whether it is a right way to maybe control one's greed or addiction in some way it's a good way it's not the only way but it's definitely a good way and and the reason is that uh, when a person is fasting you know there's a there's a very nice smell coming from the kitchen and everybody else is eating and you are like your stomach is grumbling and uh, your mouth is watering you're salivating all over your keyboard uh and to desist uh, from eating even during that time actually builds some discipline it builds some will power it uh, it uh, it is what you call sankalpa shakti and that sankalpa shakti is one of the i would say it's one of the greatest blessings that a person can have sankalpa shakti basically means doing what i have decided to do in short if i maine kisi ka dhairya liya hai ki ye karna hai to main karke rahunga ya rahungi that is your sankalpa shakti and that carries over in every form of your life so suppose you say you are addicted to alcohol i am not saying you are especially if you are a jain you are not but if you are addicted to alcohol then uh, that sankalpa shakti that you develop through fasting will actually allow you not to consume the alcohol or to consume the meat or whatever i know some people like i have spoken to this whole meat thing argument that uh, i've gotten a few people off meat by the way because i explain things to them sometimes i'll put a little bit of a, a healthy pressure also and then they come back after a few weeks saying that hey i'm struggling i'm struggling so much this is so tempting and all but then i tell them okay you know you 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 persist for a few weeks and then it'll become easier it it becomes easier after a point they give it up uh, a desire and an addiction will lose hold in time so 